I always find something amusing about the difference between opinions when something comes out and opinions later on. I even came up with a lorium for it, uh, specifically referring to the uh, uh, Princess Bride effect. You know, something comes out and people are like, eh, or I hate it, or whatever. Fast forward 10 years and people are like, oh, dude, that's awesome, right? Uh, Lord knows that can apply to a lot of things, especially when it comes to Star Trek, but in fiction in general. I mentioned that. A lot of people were upset about this episode when it came out. There was a lot of feedback, such as it is, given that this is, you know, the 90s, so feedback wasn't really the same thing then that it was now. But there was still feedback and pushback about the fact that, well, we didn't learn anything. There was no information about Garrick. You teased us, but you didn't do anything. Uh, for the record, I don't agree with that statement, just to start with that. But I also really like this episode, regardless of other fa uh, features and factors, so make of that what you will. This is, also the first, uh, this is also the first DS9 episode directed by Kim Friedman, who I only mentioned because she's not a particularly prolific director, but she has a good sense of the tight moments. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, here's a couple other episodes she's directed. Uh, Jem Hadar, Blaze of Glory, and Jatrell over on Voyager. Now, she's also directed some not particularly good episodes, but I mentioned those three because all three of those are really good at zooming the camera in on the characters and doing a good job with them. And I just feel like that's kind of her style, especially in this episode, which is functionally a bottle episode, even though it doesn't really have the same feel as most bottle episodes since, you know, they actually jump around on multiple sets and even have a full guest star on this one. Arguably two guest stars, but that's getting into nitty-gritty. You did notice that most characters basically only show up for a few seconds in this episode. Like, Cisco shows up, is like, hey, and then O'Brien's like, hey, and then Kira's like, hey, and then Quark's like, hey. Quark has two scenes. Odo has, like, two scenes. But for the most part, this is just all about Bashir and Garak. I also like the fact that this episode takes what is basically just a little bit of background flavor lore and turns it into an engaging story between two characters and actually develops the idea that uh, of this, of this uh, dynamic between Bashir and Garak, this friendship. Oh yeah, Dax is in this too. I'll talk about that later. I also find it funny, uh, the... One of the original ideas that this episode began as was actually going to be focused on Kira. And she was going to be addicted to drugs, uh, specifically battle stimulants, that she had taken and probably overdosed on during the occupation. Now what's weird is, I'm, I, I can kind of get why they didn't continue with that idea, because... Well, because that, that would run over this idea, and I like this idea more. And it would look like it was copying themselves. But at the same time, their stated reason for not going with it, I don't quite get. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. <clears throat> because what I'm looking at is their statement that they don't want to do that because they would have to acknowledge it in the future. Now, I find that hysterical. That, that says so much about Deep Space Nine's writing staff's approach to things. Well, if we introduce a character trait, we have to acknowledge it in the future. Now, that probably sounds like, duh, to you. But it's funny to me, given how much of fiction, games, movies, books, etc., or cross-media works, don't acknowledge character traits in the future. In fact, a very strong argument can be had that most of Star Trek doesn't, depending on which era of which show and whatever. I mean, there's plenty of stuff in early TNG, notably season one, but also season two, that 
basically never comes up again because everyone just kind of wanted to forget it ever existed. It was like, ah, let's just write that out of canon, you know, one of those kind of things. But here they're like, no, nah, we can't do that. <laughs> I also like this episode because this is the first time they ever really talk about Cardassia Prime. And of course, this is our introduction to the Obsidian Order. I always find it weird when I learn facts like that. It's like, man, I thought like that was always a thing. But no, and, and in fairness, the Cardassians barely had a presence until Deep Space Nine. They were just another race that we happened to have a war with and showed up, what, three times on TNG uh, prior to DS9 coming out? I could be wrong about that, but it's not often. I can think of the Wounded and Chain of Command off the top of my head. I'm not, I can't even, I'm not even trying to come up with another example off the top of my head. So let's just move on. I like the idea that Bashir and Garak keep having lunch together, like as a regular thing. There's something enjoyable about that, and something that just kind of slots in and makes sense. The two, I've often said that two people who are completely identical tend to be disinteresting from a, from a fictional perspective, from a writer's perspective. If you have two people who are very similar to each other, it's hard to do a good dynamic with those two people. It's not impossible. But it's easier, in my opinion, to put two people together who fit, who basically are in ways that the other isn't. You know, it's it's the Tetris concept. You know, you're not trying to do this, you're trying to do this. Um, and so there's a lot of obviousness in how these two characters fit together, especially given what we know from the future. It's also worth noting that several aspects of Garrick's past and future haven't fully been written out yet. And, of course, several other story arcs haven't been written out yet either. Which is why we're actually going to have a spoilers section today. We'll put it at the end of the video, don't worry. All, that's all I'm going to say about that for now. I do like the idea that this episode presents, because it presents two things right at the beginning, which are what I like to call uh, flavor lore, specifically regards to setting building. The never-ending sacrifice and the people whose name I didn't write down, but they have no concept of time. They, don't, they refuse to acknowledge the concept of time. Both of those are fascinating little anecdotes that give tiny little insights into the world that we're peeking into. I also particularly love the idea of the never-ending sacrifice. Now, the, the parallels between the book and Garrick himself are so obvious, I'm not even going to cover them. What I am going to cover is the idea of if that is actually the norm for Cardassian people, or if that is the state-sponsored norm. Forgive me for spoiling something that I think I've already talked about. The Cardassian Union is a massively totalitarian state, to the point of basically being, you know, 1984 or 1982 or whatever. It was 1984, right? 1984. It's been a while since I read the book. 1984 in cultural tones. They have such overwhelming propaganda machines going at all times that, in my opinion, it's hard to differentiate the actual culture of the people versus that culture. Now, I have my opinion on that, but my opinion is basically that their culture has been supplanted by propaganda for the most part, and that there is no, let's call it, real culture of the Cardassian people at this point in time, that very few real Cardassian values still exist. Only state values exist, which will be interesting in the future, and uh, Star Trek Online actually covers that topic very briefly, not as much as I'd like to, but anyways. So... That brings me to my question. Do you think The NeverEnding Sacrifice was written by the state propaganda machine, or do you think that is legitimately Cardassian culture? As ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts. Uh, I feel like I say that a lot. There's a scene shortly thereafter where da uh, Bashir is helping Dax with a plant, and then get... get uh, two things are interesting about that scene. First of all, he is very comfortable with Dax in that scene. 
It's nice to see the variance between this Bashir and Dax scene versus, say, the very first scene they ever showed up in way back in Emissary, where he was this awkward, bumbling idiot who loosely was trying to, to hit on her in ways that would be embarrassing if you were in high school. Here he's just himself. Now, that makes sense to me, because canonically speaking, he is still pursu pursuing her as of this point in time, although there's information about that we'll get into later. But I love it because he is so upset about this Garak thing. Okay, what I'm trying to say is I don't think he's so much that he's more comfortable with her in general. I think it... Well, I mean, okay. I do think he's more comfortable in general. But I don't think this is just him being more comfortable with her. I think this is him being legitimately upset about the Garak situation. He And he shows that towards the end. He allows himself to actually get upset and be, to be pissed. Because if he doesn't want me to, to treat him, fine. Then I won't treat him. I don't care. Whatever. Fine. You know. I, I mean, haven't we all done that? I don't care about such and such. Y generally speaking, when someone says, I don't care about such and such, in that one particular tone, what we're actually saying is, I care a great deal about such and such, which is a thing or a concept or a topic or a person or whatever, or a cat. I don't know. And we're upset about the fact that we can't do anything about it, or they're pissing us off, or whatever. Something's upset us, emotionally destabilized us, and this is our way of dealing with it, with insisting we don't care. And so I think the Bashir here is so distracted that he doesn't really have the ability to, to process being nervous around Jadzia. Now, I similarly mentioned that. Forgive me for mentioning something so tiny like that, but there's a lot of tiny moments in this episode, which, again, I feel uh, sits on the weight of Kim Friedman and, of course, the actors who have a great deal of, of uh, panache throughout this episode. It's mentioned that both uh, Alexander Siddick, yes, I know that's not his real name, and... Um, Oh, God, I don't actually... I can't remember the name, name of the guy who plays Garrick, and I know I'm going to get 50 comments telling me it. But both actors really had a lot of chemistry together, that they, they legitimately enjoyed acting alongside each other. Andrew Robinson. That they legitimately enjoyed acting alongside each other, and really, it, it just gelled, that it was fun. That's another thing. Uh, one of the biggest traits that I will have and will always give Voyager over every other Star Trek show is that the actors really got along really well and really liked acting with each other. There are exceptions to that. There's individual exceptions. But for the most part, they got on stage and it just worked from word go, from the very beginning in Caretaker. And, there, and in my opinion, as a consumer, as a viewer of, function, of fiction, there's always something more enjoyable about seeing actors who like acting with each other or who like each other acting on screen. And I mention that because it really shines in this episode. If it's not obvious, I do love this episode. And I really, really enjoy the character dynamic between both people. I'll talk more about that specific dynamic later. I want to move on to my next point, which is Quark. Again, tiny little nuanced thing. I just want to point this out. This is not the first time I've seen this, but this is probably one of the most times it was best on display. Uh, again, I credit a lot of that to the director. Uh, Quark has this thing where he will... He, someone's like, aha, I've caught you in a lie. And he'll get fidgety. Like his movements are twitchy, quick, fast. And then as soon as his adaptive lying mechanism kind of takes over, he smooths out. It's a nice little touch, and it's really funny because he's like, huh, what? And he's like a little twitchy, and then he, he like twitches back and forth a little bit, and then he turns it into a rather smooth head bob as he figures out how he's going to lie around this. 
As I've mentioned several times before, Cork is a very uh, on-the-fly, adaptive liar. That's the kind of lying he's good at. And he, he just has that little second of, okay, processing, processing, all right, I've got it. So here's what I'm, I'm going to say, and here's what I'm going to do. He's really good at that, and I love that little tick that we have. And, of course, you could imagine that someone like Odo probably notices that tick, too, given his observational skills, but I digress. Speaking of Odo, I find Odo weird in this episode. Now, we've already established that Odo's a little bit um, fascist, and (laughs) just a little bit. He's definitely got that sort of a totalitarian stint to him. You know, his comment earlier, if, if everyone, say what you will about the Cardassians, but everyone was safer there, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, his comment about, you know, I, I keep secret tabs on everyone for their own good is just kind of, uh-huh. That's a little questionable. I can kind of see the morality of that, but, you know. And then he mentions, oh, I want to interrogate Garak because he was apparently a member of the Obsidian Order, and I want to talk to him about these open cases that involved Obsidian Order agents. Now, (laughs) that's ridiculously naive, but at least understandable. Right up until Bashir says, well, no, I'm sorry, he might die. This can't happen. And Otis says, well, then I want to go see to him now. Now, see, (laughs) that makes a horrific amount of sense from Odo's perspective. Odo does understand valuing the individual, and we'll talk a lot about that much, much later, like season four, season five. Um, But Odo does not value every individual. Thus, Odo, who has no value in Garak, values his cases more than Garak, a.k.a. why he says such a thing in a frankly rude manner. To the point where it's just like, yeah, well, I need to see him now. I need this information as quickly as possible. And it is only his relative respect for Bashir that manages to make him stand down on this matter. Now, (laughs) there's a scene where Quark calls Bashir and says, can you come help with this? Now, I like that scene. Because I've heard some people complain that it's weird why Quark would be upset at him, you know, buying all his canar. Because there's not a lot of buyers of canar. In fact, it's actually been a mentioned story point previous to now. Uh, I said, yeah, it was previous to now, where Quark was upset at how much canar he had that he couldn't unload because nobody buys it anymore. I th- maybe I'm thinking of the Yamak. Uh, no, no, I am. I am thinking of that. I am thinking of that. Right. I, I should look that up real quick. Regardless, I actually think that's not what was going on at all there, personally. I think that what was happening is Quark, who is far more about the people, like he's about the people more than anything other than the, uh, what's it called? (laughs) The money. I can't think today. I'm sorry, I'm so tired. He's far more about the people than the money, especially since the people can bring in the money. I personally think that he was actually calling on Bashir because he really wanted him to take care of this problem of one of his pa- his customers being hurt and upset and causing a scene. Especially since Quark is well aware of the fact that Bashir cares about Yurik. I mean, any idiot would know that these two people have lunch every day for two years. But also, in addition to that, that Bashir has been actively trying to deal with this situation, too. Remember, as of this point, Garak has already approached Quark about getting him the implant. Uh, hang on, hang on. Please forgive me. Destiny. The name of the episode is Destiny. 
where I, I think that's actually in the future now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I actually can't remember. Does anyone remember when the episode Destiny ends? I suppose it doesn't matter. Oh, it is in the future. There it is. Season 3. Right there. Season 3. Episode something. Doesn't give me the number. Moving on. One other thing I like about this is the scene between Cork and Random Guy. I don't remember his name and it doesn't matter. I know this is going to sound extremely odd, but to me the idea of an intelligence organization that has certain technology that's just flagged, any search for that technology or an ID code for that technology leads to a flag going off, leads to an alert. That makes a lot of sense, especially in something like Star Trek. Um, roughly speaking, something like cloaking technology. That, that's that's very surface level. But, you know, something like that would make sense to me if someone's trying to look into this, that someone should be alerted about this fact. Now, it might be nothing. It could be some kid looking up something for a school project. It could be some guy who's bored going, going down Star Trekpedia. I don't think they call it memory alpha in character, but, you know, something like that. But at the same time, someone who punches that in, sending up an alert, I'm with that, especially since this is something that is classified and also technology they're only the one they're the only ones who are supposed to have. I also like the strangely nice camaraderie that Quark has with random guy. Uh, it it kind of helps to show how many connections Quark really has because he's a people person like I mentioned earlier. Oh, quick aside, I I know I already commented on this, but I love Odo's line. But she's like, "You don't have one of these in my room, do you?" And Odo says, "Should I?" <laughs> so then, of course, Bashir confronts Garrick, and basically the episode actually starts, because most of the episode from this point onward is a two-man, you know, one-act between Garrick and Bashir. First of all, I've made the argument before that the only truth that is stated in this episode, the only true truth, is the initial information dump. He tells him about the implant, and he tells him about how much he hates living here. I believe both of those things, and almost nothing else that he says. I also note that he segues from that almost immediately into a provable lie. But before I get into that, I just want to mention, medically speaking, the idea of having endorphins flooding your body for, flooding your brain for years, all the time, is kind of horrifying. I don't want to go fully in detail into that, especially since I didn't do all the research that I was planning to for this, because I'm kind of in a hurry with these ruminations, but... That's absolutely goddamn terrifying. I'm sorry. The idea of having endorphins just constantly flooding your brain, that's going to alter your brain chemistry on a long-term basis. That's going to alter the very way your brain works at all, as in how it processes certain signals and how it handles certain signals. I'm amazed that he is having relatively moderate brain damage compared to everything else that could be happening to him now. I'm, In fact, I'm frankly astonished they actually fixed this. I know Star Trek medical tech is like one of the best medical techs in fiction, but god dang. Anywho, so he tells him the real truth, and he's reliant on that for forever. And now we're going to kind of skip ahead a bit, because I don't have a lot of specific detail things to talk about. I have a question instead for you. I have heard two theories over the years as to what's going on with Garrick in this episode. Theory one is that Garrick has been playing Bashir from the beginning, and theory two is that Garrick was suicidal and convinced not to be towards the end. If you, have, if you agree with either of these, I would love to hear why, and I'd love to hear your reasoning. 
If you have another theory, I would love to hear that as well. But I want to give the posits of both theories that I've heard over the years uh, discussed amongst fandom really quick here. So let's look at the order of events really quick. He's obviously obstinate to the point where he is overtly giving away information, which is kind of unusual for Garak. Then he tells him the truth. Again, very believable, very understandable truth. Then he tells him a lie, a second lie, and then a third lie. Each lie is specifically designed to push in a, in a specific direction against Bashir. The first lie is, I'm a horrible, despicable person. That doesn't push Bashir away. The second lie is, I did something wonderful and regret it, which arguably makes him worse of a person. That doesn't work. The third lie is a simple, I regret what I did, you know, basically appealing that I am actually not that horrible of a person, and I want you to forgive me. Now, the structure of these events can fit in both of these uh, theories I've mentioned. The idea behind the he changed his mind, he was suicidal and changed his mind, is that he was pushing Bashir away. The first lie was specifically designed for Bashir to be appalled and disgusted by this person and to just walk out and then to let him die. The second the lie also serves this purpose. It basically cuts to a more personal, more tragic, more horrible tragedy. No, I'm even worse than you thought. Really, I'm, I'm much worse than you thought. Please let me die, right? And then the third lie is the one by which time he has finally accepted the idea of living. The idea here that being, he flat out says, I want you to forgive me. Now, regardless of which theory you apply to, I personally think that that is one of the very few true things he says there. And I mention that because, as I mentioned, almost everything else he says is lies. There's the initial info dump, and then, in my opinion, I want you to forgive me. Not because I think he needs forgiveness. I think it's because he needs friendship. I don't want to sound all sappy here, but I think Garak legitimately enjoys Bashir's company and wants Bashir to, wants to know if Bashir legitimately enjoys his company back. That he has a real friend. Despite Bashir's assertions earlier, I don't trust Garak either. He's not my friend. I'm not his friend. As he says to Tain at the end, Garak is his friend. He does actually care about him. And that whole forgiveness bit is him admitting that to his face in a nice open manner, whereas Garak is admitting it in a nice completely concealed manner. And I love that. Again, as I say, they fit each other because both of them, in my opinion, both of them are telling each other that they are friends, that they are officially comm commiserating their friendship, right? And that's awesome. But Bashir is doing it by saying, I'm your friend. Garak is doing it by saying, <laughs> right? Garak's greatest talent in this show, in my opinion, is to tell the truth by lying. It's relatively easier to deceive by telling the truth. To actually be able to get across factual information with lies, now that is far more interesting talent and far more difficult to, to, to get across. Uh, far more trickier to write, I might add. So, I, I just love that particular perspective on it. That you know, I forgive you, because I even wrote it down, Bashir flat out says, I forgive you for whatever it is you did. Making it very clear he doesn't actually believe him, but he does still care about him. Now, the other theory is that Garak has been playing Bashir from the beginning. 
I admit I don't like that as much purely because it basically involves less actual connection between the two characters. Because the idea here is that Garak knew the implant was finally getting to the point of being brain damage and that he had no real hope of help because nobody on the station really knew how to deal with this and the only one who might even give a damn is Bashir. Thus, him giving obvious signs of being ill puts Bashir on the trail. His telling him the truth gives him the information he needs in order to be able to deal with this. And then his lying basically pushes Bashir to try harder. Uh, let me put this to you in a visual thing. So forgive me for those of you listening to the MP3. So just picture my hands are going together right now. The idea is if you're trying to push someone to here and you're receiving pushback, then you push harder. Several types of people, personality-wise, will try harder if they are being opposed rather than if they're just allowed to do whatever. If, if Garak just went along with it, there's a chance, chance, that Bashir would not be cap capable of actually fixing the problem, especially if he wasn't as determined as he otherwise would be. As an aside, it's also a very Garak way of thinking of things. I could just walk up to Bashir and say, Hi, I've got an implant, I need you to fix this. But it's just not his style. He doesn't do that. He, he paints a bunch of brush strokes and he assumes that you are paying attention and that you are being observant and that you will put things together yourself. You will come to the decision that he is wanting you to come to based on the information he has presented to you. I've said many, many times that we as human beings tell far more information by how we tell it than what it is we are actually saying. And Garrick is a firm believer in that concept. So then, you know, he, he pushes him and he pushes him and in his third line, this is very interesting, he flat out mentions the Aroath colony. He name drops it very early on. It's a very strange thing to kind of insert there. And of course, that is actually what Nibrintain really is, thus leading to you know, Bashir finding him and fixing him and blah, blah, blah. Once again, that piece of information kind of fits in with either theory, but supports the latter theory a little bit more. So what do you guys think? Um, I do like how uh, Paul Dooley is. He comes across... Can I segue for just a second? I'm sorry. I want to talk about one of my own stories, Primus specifically. It was a D&D &D campaign. Well, not D&D, &D, it was a tabletop campaign I ran for several years. And during all that campaign, there were several villainous characters and villains throughout the course of it. One of them was a politician. He was a very, very smart, very affable incredibly evil person who was basically one of the most powerful, politically powerful people in the entire setting. I mention this because he's, he's the character I was most proud of in the entire work because there are several people, who, some of my players and several of the viewers who flat out told me that he was damn terrifying. Like I have a partial quote here, I've never felt more afraid than in the meeting I was in with that guy. <laughs> I was actually very pleased with that because that's exactly what I was going for. Which brings me to Paul Dooley's performance as an Ebrantain. An Aubrantain? I actually can't remember how they say it. It's Tain, as Tain. Because he is very affable, very polite, very courteous. He also says things and does things in a way basically designed to tell you how much he knows. He goes, he goes out of his way to basically make it clear that I'm completely on top of this situation in every way. How can I help you? He also comes across as incredibly terrifying. 
it's it's not until the end of the conversation that he gets more overt. But he there's this one the way he says, I know I really think it's time you should go, is just chilling. And the way he's presented throughout this whole thing is just wow. You get the very strong impression that he could, if he just reached up and snapped his fingers, that he could have had Bashir executed on the spot. No one would have already noticed. <laughs> that being said, Tane does take action to save Garak's life. So we're going to go ahead and bring down the spoiler section. For those of you who have not watched the rest of Deep Space Nine, please hit the pause or stop or whatever. And mash the like button. Mash it as hard as... I, I hate it when people do that. So uh, I, I will hopefully remember to bring down the controversy box. I don't ever, always remember to edit things properly because I usually edit things weeks and weeks after I record them. But controversy box, in case I remember. Three, two, one. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Oh, wait, did I say controversy box? God, I am really out of it. Spoilers box. Spoilers box. Spoilers, 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 spoilers. Not controversy. No controversy here. No controversy in Deep Space Nine. <laughs> now let's talk about terrorism and state-sponsored propaganda. No, I'm kidding. Spoilers. This is your last chance. All right, we're good. I actually find myself wondering if Tane, in his own extremely weird Cardassian way, does actually care about Garak, his son. Because... One of the things we learn many times over is that there is a very strong tribal mentality amongst the Cardassians, specifically going down in layers. There's the tribe of the Union, there's the tribe of your specific organization, because there's a lot of internecine fighting amongst the military, the Order, the... I can't remember their name, the Datapa, when they actually exist, you know. And then there's your family. And there's nothing below the family. There's, there's your family. You are part of the family. And family is a huge centric part of Cardassian mindset. So even if Tane doesn't, you know, in, in traditional sense, love his son, there's probably still some vestiges of him caring about his son, thus being willing to spare his life. Or he could be doing this out of a sense of cruelty because of how much he despises his son. I don't actually know. And it's interesting enough that we don't really get enough information to really decide that. We do have definitive proof that Garak cares about Tane. The reverse is a little more debatable. What do you think? The other thing I want to mention is the fact that Bashir is incredibly intelligent. This is, in my opinion, the other reason why Bashir and Garak fit together so well. Because both of them obfuscate stupidity all the time. Now, Bashir is very black and white in his morality. This will come up later with the Section 31 stuff. But... And, and Garrick is a lot more fluid and gray with his morality. And the two do still have opposites about each other, but the one thing they really have unifying them is that feature. Both of them present a facade of someone who is nowhere near as intelligent, and this is important, as observant as they really are. Now, to my knowledge, this is never confirmed at all in the entire work. But I always liked the idea that Garrick basically knew something was up with Bashir. Not the specifics. I don't think he figured out the specifics. But he figured out that there was more to this person than meets the eye. And that's part of what, for lack of a better word, attracted him to him. Part of why they ended up growing together and becoming, becoming friends over time. Because Bashir certainly is smart enough to re recognize that there's more to Garak than he's putting on. The only difference between the two really, <laughs> outside of writing, uh, from an in-character perspective, is that Bashir never lets out any hints of how good he is. Garrick does so constantly, basically, as a game. And out of character, Garrick was always written to be someone more than he is, and Bashir, they came up with that later. So, it fits both ways. 
But I've always loved that idea, especially since even in this very episode, they kind of make a very minor point of how observant Bashir is, because he pays attention many times throughout this episode and picks out several little details that otherwise aren't particularly notable and just latches onto them and, through doing so, finds his way to the solution. The colony thing, uh, the actual specific symptoms that he was following, fixing the flower with Dax, little stuff like that. Now, obviously, that was probably done deliberately, not to show that Bashir is super intelligent, but rather to show the very nature of the episode, the the mask hiding the reality, you know, the obvious hiding the truth kind of a thing, the mad magician trick, if you will. Regardless, I really liked this episode. I hope you did too. I'll see you guys next time.